So there was a, in the 18th century, there was a, uh, a satirist and uh, a writer, a poet, a guy named Voltaire. And Voltaire famously said that perfect is the enemy of the good. This was a phrase that he came up with. Perfect is the enemy of the good. And what Voltaire meant by that was that in our work and in our relationships and in our homes and uh, on our jobs, if we're always striving for perfection and we won't settle for anything less than perfection, we may be inadvertently foregoing a lot of good that can happen, right? So we may be like trying really, really hard for the perfection and missing out on the good. So let me just get an admission from you guys here today. Are there any perfectionists? Anybody got a little bit of the perfect? I'm seeing people like nudge other people, right? Okay. You're some perfectionists out there, right? Not that many. Well, that's, well so like perfectionists, right? We, we, you got to get the A, you know, you, you, you focus on what went wrong rather than what went right. Any little thing that falls, you know, fails or messes up, you just, you just, you know, chew on it night and day. You think about it. Think, anybody married to a perfectionist out there? Oh, wow, really? Now they're, that's interesting. That's really interesting because the ratio just went up. Um, all right, this is your opportunity to just turn to them just one time. You don't, it's not a, not a lecture, not a monologue, but just turn to them and say, you got to chill, baby. You got to just say it. Just tell them you got to chill. Okay, that's your chance. All right. Um, I, I got to admit, I have a little bit of the perfectionist bug in me and uh, not on all things, but on certain things. And so like, you know, when I'm, for instance, preparing a sermon, um, it's embarrassing how long it takes me to prepare a sermon because I really, really want to get it right. I really want to be able to communicate something that's useful and helpful. And it takes me a long time. Uh, and I came across a, a Q&A, uh, an interview with a guy named Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And, and Tim Keller was speaking to new pastors and he said, listen, you should not spend a lot of time working on your sermon if you're a new pastor. He says, because it doesn't matter if you spend two hours or 20 hours, because your first 200 sermons, he said, are going to be terrible no matter what. So don't even worry about it. Go to the hospital, visit people, go to graduations, go have coffee. Don't spend a lot of time on your sermon because the first 200 are just going to be awful. All right. Well, I have good news for you guys. This is my 171st sermon. Okay. So if you hang around... 29 more Sundays. I'm going to get good at this. And we're going to have church. <laughs> uh, my son, my sons both have a little bit of the perfectionist bug also. The other day I was getting Jameson, uh, trying to get him dressed for school. And got the shirt on, got the shorts on. Um, and hair combed, teeth brushed, fed, everything. But he, I, I couldn't get him to put his socks and his shoes on. So I would be like, run, you know, going through the house doing my thing and be like, hey, son, you got to get your socks and shoes on. And he's standing there by the sock drawer. But I just, it seemed like every time I walked by, he was still just standing there looking at the sock drawer. Okay. Finally, I had to go out to the car and get something. I'd go out to the car, come back in. And, and now it's like, it's time. It's late. So I go up there and I look at him and he's still standing there barefoot, you know, in front of the sock drawer. And I go, Jameson, son, you got to get your socks and your shoes on. He goes, I can't, Dad. And I go, why not? And he looks up at me. He's dead serious. He's like, I'm looking for the perfect pair of socks. And I'm like, I don't even know how to respond to that. Because, I, I mean, the perfect color, the perfect height, the perfect width, the perfect smell. I don't know what he's talking about. 
But he's got this in his mind. He had the idealized, the, the platonic idealized sock that he wanted to wear. Um, but hopefully as we mature, some of us say, like, all right, uh, I'm going to lower my standard, at least in terms of socks and these kinds of things, from perfect to good enough, right? Sometimes we have to just be like, all right, well, it's just it's, it's going to be good enough. My lawn, it may not be perfect, you know, but from far away, it looks good enough, right? It looks good enough. That green spray paint, no. Uh, uh, it's good. Like, the, the 20 minutes that you will walk on the treadmill, right, is better than the 10-mile run that you're never actually going to do, right? So it's, it's, it's got to be good enough. That, that imperfect diet that you eat where you visit Sweetie Pies only once a month instead of once a week, that's got to, you know, that's better than the absolute perfect diet that you're never never, ever going to achieve, right? Um, So, in all of these areas of our life, Voltaire is right, right? That perfect is the enemy of the good and that we should be okay with the good. But the question that we're going to explore today, and the question I have for you is, when it comes to our moral life, our moral life, our morals, our ethics, our spiritual life, what is the standard? What is good enough, right? Where, Where do we draw the line, okay? So, is it okay to cheat just a little bit on your taxes, right? Where, like, if nobody can, no, nobody's going to know, you got a little cash that came in, it's, nobody knows. I mean, is it, like, wh- you know, where do, where do you stand on that, right? Is it okay to just, just subtly talk about somebody behind their back, right? Because we know it's not really nice to do that, but, you know, I mean, what's our, can we relax that standard just a little bit and put somebody down, for, you know, by, what about cheating on an exam? What if we just want a little bit of an edge, right? I mean, what if we take stuff home from work that's not really expensive, you know, so it's not really stealing, right? Is it, you know, what's our standard, right? Is it okay if you, it, you know, if you, if you, you have lust in your heart, you say, all right, I'm, I'm looking at something on the internet that I probably shouldn't look at, but I'm not going to look at it very much. I'm not going to look at it very long, and, I, and it's not going to be chronic, right? What is, what's the standard, right? Is it okay to take just a little bit of air out of a football, just a little tiny bit of air, just a tiny bit? Just a, just a little bit. All you Tom Brady fans are like, dude, 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 dude. Come on, man. Wasn't that much. Um, so that, that's the question. So we have to figure out in our mind, what is our moral standard? What is the standard that we live by and that we can live by? Let me give you a few, a few possibilities. One is better than average. That, that might be a standard that we could employ, right? Better than average. That means, uh, you know, if you look across the population, and you go, you know, I am actually morally superior to 50% of the people that I know. So I'm, that's good. I'm going to be fine with that, right? As long as I don't wind up on Jerry Springer, I'm good. Like, I'm, 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 I'm like, that's my standard, right? What if your standard then, or maybe you have a standard of more good than bad, okay? So a lot of people kind of have this in their mind, somewhere in their mind. They have a scale. And it's like, well, I did all these really, really terrible things, but then I did all these really, really good things, and my good things sort of outweigh the bad things, right? So that's going to be my moral standard. Another standard that you may have is like, okay, no major sins, right? So as long as I'm not hitting the big ones, I'm not murdering anybody, I'm not, you know, I'm not robbing a liquor store, uh, you, know, I could, you know, some of my little things are, are okay. I can just sort of like get by with them. So what is the moral standard that we set for ourselves? We've been in this series called Jesus Said, 
And what's great about the series is that it's really for everybody. If you're here and you're like, you're a cynic or you're a skeptic or you're uncertain about what you think about Jesus and the Bible and all that, this is an amazing series because we're actually just going through the book of Matthew and looking at what he said. So you can just sit there and analyze this and think, do I want to be a follower of a guy who says that? Do I want to be his follower? And if you are a Christian or you are a follower of Jesus, this stuff is absolutely imperative right? Because, you know, we need to know what he said. We need to explore it deeply so that we can live our lives according to it. So we can, we can, you know, live out what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus gets into this issue uh, in, in the, the passage we're going to read in just a moment. And I'm going to tell you out of the gate, everybody will be at least slightly, if not greatly, offended by some of the stuff he says. Because it is, when I read this, and I've read this a lot of times, but when I read it with the intent to plan and prepare and preach it, I'm like, this is, this is over the top. I mean, this is crazy. This is like outrageous. Because Jesus, what Jesus says in these next few passages are going to just blow your mind. So what I'm going to ask you to do is hang out here. Don't leave until the very end. Uh, because if you leave midway through, um, you're, you're going to have some, some thoughts in your mind that, that, that um, may not be that helpful to your spiritual walk. So let's, let's dive in. We're going to go into it, and then I'm going to stop a little bit along the way. We're going to talk on it, and then I'm going to try to wrap it up at the very end. So let's just explore it. There's a big chunk of it. A lot of it is in your uh, sermon notes here. So if you've got your sermon notes, you can follow along um, with your sermon notes, and, and there are little blanks you can fill in. Um, but let's start with uh, the very first part here, Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus is preaching, right? He's up on a hill. His disciples are around him. The crowd is there. And he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, he said. I've come to fulfill them. Now, in Jesus' day, there was, a, there was a rumor going around about him because he was all full of mercy and grace and he was all kind and forgiving people and all this kind of stuff. And so people were saying, uh, the, the religious elites were saying, you know what, the problem with Jesus is he's soft. He's soft on the law. He's, not uphol- he's basically lowering the standard. He's watering down. He's diluting the law of Moses. So you've got to watch out for him because he's basically saying, ah, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to uh, do everything that Moses said, right? And we have that view of Jesus also, right? We have this view that there's this Old Testament God who's angry and mean and strict and hardcore, and then Jesus comes along, and he's like the Mr. Rogers of the Godhead, and he's kind of like, it's okay. You know, he's feathered hair, picking flowers, and it's like, it's okay what you did. That's not really that bad, right? We, you know, we kind of have this idea too. Jesus goes, no, you got me wrong. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Then he says this, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, not even the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then he takes it further. He says, for I'm telling you this, that unless your righteousness surpasses that, exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then you will certainly not come into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is where it's sort of crazy, right? Because the Pharisees were observing the religious law to the T. These guys were observing every letter of the law. In fact, at at certain points, it says that they would tithe on the mints and the herbs that came out of their garden. So if they got four little mint leaves, 
you know, or let's say 10, let's just keep it, 10 little mint leaves, they would tithe one to the temple. That's how, that's how fastidious and meticulous and strict they were about following the law. Like the law of Moses says, do not work on the Sabbath. They constructed 39 categories of what it means to work. And then there are subcategories under that. And so there were thousands of rules about what it meant to not work on the Sabbath. And they observed all of them. And they would ask questions like, how many steps can you take on the Sabbath before it becomes work? And they would figure that out, and they would stop one, one step short of that, you know. So they're not working. Um, they, they would figure out how many letters you could write before you were actually working on the Sabbath, and they would stop and not write that many letters. When women wore like a hair pen in their hair, there was, a, there was, an, you know, there was a, 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 an argument going on um, about whether she was just wearing it or whether she was carrying it. Because if she was carrying it, then it's work. And you can't do that on the Sabbath. I mean, I'm telling you, these guys were observing it down to the T. And Jesus is saying, you got to be more righteous than them. you got to be more righteous than them. So the crowd is going like, um, okay, that's not going to happen. Uh, then he says this. He says, he starts giving examples. He says, you have heard, and let me tell you, we're going to see this a few times. And every time you hear this, you need to, like, put your seatbelt on. Because whatever he says, you have heard, because then he's going to say, but, and it's going to be worse. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, raka, which is basically like saying, you idiot or you moron, um, uh, which I just said, um, okay, so brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, uh, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So he's basically saying, look, yeah, the law says don't murder. I'm saying don't even have that kind of animus and animosity in your heart. Like, that's, that's, that's disobeying the law, right? So, like, you know, when I'm driving in my car and people do what they do with their moving into my lane, you know, I'm like, can I say it if they don't hear me say it? Right, can I use the words if I don't? You got to be careful because your phone sometimes will be pocket dialing people and they can hear what you say. Um, you know, because you're, you know, suddenly you're going, no, wait a minute, I've got to be more righteous than the most righteous. I can't even, I can't even have animus or animosity in my heart. Then he says, keeps going further. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery put your seatbelts on. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the entire male population there on the mountain are like, dude, I'm out. Okay, I'm out. Thank you. Right? I mean, you know, he's, he's laying out this standard that just seems absolutely preposterous, right? You think, you think Lord, you know, Give us something, give us something soft here. Like, give us a little bit of cushion. We need a little bit of a release valve. Here it is. If your right eye offends you, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Next line, he says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. So you're like, okay, <laughs> okay. So let me just, let, we're going to recap. We're going to recap. If I'm angry with my brother, going to hell. If I lust, going to hell. I lost both eyes. I've got no hands. My tongue is probably cut off at this point. Like, there's no way I can do this, 
right? I can't, I can't, I can't do it, right? And then you think, Lord, please give us, you know, like, let's, can we spiritualize this in some weird way, right? He says, no, let me give you some, uh, 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 let, me, let me give you some more. He says, if anybody, uh, it has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I say that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so all of the divorced people in the crowd are going, oh, okay, wow, all right, that hit hard. And then he says this. He says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I'm telling you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other uh, to them also. Now, I have a particular problem with this one because, and, and it's not necessarily for me as much, but like I, we were at the playground the other day and my little one-year-old, Augustine, is like doing his waddle across the playground. And here comes this three-year-old bully, all right? And Augustine's got this little ball and this three-year-old kid comes over and like belly bumps Augustine. And Augustine falls down on his diaper, and the three-year-old picks up the ball, okay? Now, the kid is three, so I should just be like, oh, kids, you know? But I'm like, hey, 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 you know? And the dad was there. The other kid's dad was there, and they didn't do anything about it. So I'm like, I wanted to take the dad out behind the playground and be like, hey, what's up with your three-year-old, you know? And I'm like, wait a minute. Rain it in. Um, so these are just, like, really, really hard. He said, uh, for you have, heard, uh, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That means that weird person on Facebook who, like, trolls your account. Love that person. Love them. That boss that is absolutely uh, over the top, outrageous, unfair, uncool. Love that person right? Love the, the, the person whose, like, political views are just absolutely abhorrent to you. Love that person, is what he's saying, right? He does this whole sermon, and, and, and as you're reading it, you're like, you've got to give us a break. Somewhere, there's got to be relief. Somewhere, there's got to be a, just kidding, you know, just do your best, and you guys will be fine, right? You want that. We need that. We really need that, right? Maybe he'll give it to us in this next line. Help us out, Jesus. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's the problem with that word perfect in the Greek. It means perfect. And, and, and that's problematic. Um, yeah. And in case you don't know what it means, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, like, just in case you don't know what perfect means, God. It's like you got to be as perfect as God. Then Jesus says this, this part of sermon, drops the mic, walks off the stage. That's it. Thank you and good night, right? Seriously, if you look at Matthew, he actually just changes, he changes uh, the subject after this and moves on to a different thing. And so you're sitting there going like, this is very problematic, Jesus, because you, I've got to be more righteous than the most righteous. In fact, I've got to be perfect. In fact, I've got to be as perfect as God. That's your standard? I liked my better than average better. That was much better, right? So Jesus presents us with this incredibly difficult paradox. And here's the paradox, is that the moral standard of Jesus is perfection. And that is a standard that is impossible for us to follow. So what is he doing? He's presenting us with a standard, a moral standard, that is totally and completely 
impossible to follow. So the next question that you have to ask as you're reading this is, why would Jesus give us a standard that we cannot follow, right? Because there's nobody in the Bible that followed this. You could just look, right? Adam, no. Eve, no. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Sarah, Rebecca, you know, Elijah, Elisha, David, Nathaniel, you know, whatever. Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, whatever. None of them did it. None of them did it. Nobody. Nobody. So you have to go, okay, he's giving us this moral standard of perfection. What is he doing? What is he driving at? Why is he giving us a standard that we cannot keep? One answer may be that he's just saying, hey, I want you to try harder. Just go out there and try harder, guys, right? But that's not, that doesn't work because you know that no matter how hard you try, you're not going to reach that moral standard, right? You can sit here right now and just pray right now, Lord, I've been a sinner up to this point, but from this day forward, I shall never sin, neither externally nor internally. I will walk in perfect pureness and righteousness from this day forward, amen. And I can guarantee you that if you don't sin while you're still in the auditorium, you will sin shortly thereafter. Um, so that can't be it. Maybe he's trying to, maybe he's trying to limit his, his following to only those people who are like the most righteous and like the best people, the most like elite moral people, right? Maybe that's what he's trying to do. But that doesn't work because when you read about him, he's always going after like the worst person. He's always going after the person who's totally like way beyond you. You're like, whoa, that's, you know, I'm not that bad, my Lord. Um, that, that, that's who he's going after. So that can't be it, right? So what is he doing? I think he's doing, and I'm going to propose to you that he's doing three things, and two of them are tied together, okay? So here's the first two. The moral standard of Jesus requires or elicits universal repentance and universal non-judgmentalism. Earlier in Matthew, it says that Jesus went out and started to proclaim his message, and his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we hear, hear the word repent, we may get in our mind like a guy with a white robe and like the sandwich board and like, you know, out on the street losing it, you know, with his eyes rolled back in his head. But, but really, it's a, it's, a, it's a simple term. It's a simple meaning. It's, it just means that you are turning. You're turning. You're turning away from what you were and you're turning towards something else. It's, it's a paradigm shift. It's a heart shift. It's where, you, it's where you make a 180 and you go, I was going this way, now I'm going that way. That's what repentance means. And Jesus knows that unless he has a standard of perfection as the standard, that you and I will find ways to meet any lower standard because we will devise technicalities and loopholes in order to meet the standard. And when we meet that lower standard, which we can do, some of us would be able to do it, we will become very judgmental. We will, our heart will remain corrupt because we will not be repentant because we will be saying, look, I've met, I'm meeting the standard. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They were actually meeting the standard that they were following. They were following the rules technically, right? And if you follow the rules technically, you're never going to get your heart in a position where you go, I need you, Lord. It won't go there because you're going to feel justified in the way that you're living, right? I used to have uh, a, a buddy growing up, and some of you guys know him, Miguel Alamos. Uh, Miguel and I, um, we used to run around together and uh, get in trouble. And uh, we had, you know, there was a prohibition in my house. I was like 12, 13. One of the rules was no smoking cigarettes. 
not allowed to smoke cigarettes. So I knew that I was not allowed to smoke cigarettes, you know, just like that was off the charts, off the table, right? But since it was a rule, I could find a loophole, right? Because I wanted to smoke cigarettes. I saw people smoking cigarettes, and they looked super cool. Back then in the high school, they actually had a smoking patio. They don't do that anymore, do they? But, you know, like, but like, like all the cool kids would be out there, like, smoking. Like, their parents wrote them a note saying, it's okay. And, um, and uh, so you'd walk by there and just be like, look at these guys, the long hair and the freaking rocking. But, um, but so I wanted to smoke cigarettes. But I knew that if I smoke cigarettes, I'm busted. That's breaking the rules. So Miguel and I go into my mom's bathroom. We find some c- cinnamon potpourri. We crush that cinnamon potpourri. We roll that cinnamon potpourri in post-it pads. I'm not joking, man. Post-it pads. We roll up about a dozen of these little potpourri things. We go out to the treehouse. We light them up. We're smoking away, man. And you know what? We didn't feel bad about it because they're not cigarettes. Like, technically, we had followed the rule, right? We found a loophole. And, you know, if mom would have, if mom would have said, have you guys been smoking cigarettes? We'd be like, Psh, no, are you kidding? Right? Because we found a loophole, right? When it comes to our morality, our spirituality, right, Jesus is saying with this standard, hey, I'm closing all the loopholes. I'm closing up all the technicalities for your spiritual life. Why? Because what I want is not for you to find a way to follow the rules technically. What I want is your heart. I want your heart to open up. I want it to break before me and say, God, I need you. I want you to repent. I want everybody to repent and say, Lord, I need you. I need to follow you. I need your help. I can't do this on my own. So whether you are the Pope or a prostitute, whether you're a mass murderer or your Mother Teresa, this is a universal standard, and it calls everybody to repentance because we're all broken. We're all stumbling. We're all failing in somewhere in our life, and it calls each and every one of us to repentance if the standard is perfection. The other thing that it does Second piece of that is, you can go back, Don, is the, um, ju- it's, it's universal non-judgmentalism. Go back one slide. Um, so, so it's universal repentance and it's universal non-judging. Now there was a, 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 a story in the Bible where Jesus was um, sitting down with a Pharisee. He was having dinner with the Pharisees because he also, he hung out with them from time to time also. And uh, the, the scripture says that a woman came to the dinner, um, uninvited, came into the dinner and came into the house, and while Jesus is sitting there having dinner with this very righteous guy, um, this woman comes in, she go, falls down on her knees next to Jesus, and she just, she just starts crying. She just starts weeping. And the scripture says that um, her, her tears were just like covering Jesus' feet. You know, and, and then she takes her hair and she dries his feet with her hair. And then she like breaks open this little box with, with perfume and she pours it and she anoints his feet with this oil and this perfume, right? Now the Pharisee who's sitting across from Jesus is going, oh, okay, okay. Uh, he knows who this woman is. She's local, right? And this, is a, this woman is a troubled woman. We don't know exactly what all she was into, but it, scripture says that she was a sinful woman. She was, maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe she was, we don't know exactly, right? But she was, she was a woman of ill repute, okay? So the, so the, uh, the Pharisee is sitting there and he, he's thinking to himself, doesn't say it out loud, you know, Jesus is not, can't be a prophet. This guy can't be a prophet. I just, I busted him, right? Because a prophet would know that this woman is of ill repute, and he would not let himself be marred by her touching him in this way, right? 
Jesus is sitting there with his feet being washed, looking across at the Pharisee, knows the Pharisee's heart, and he says, oh yeah, I, I know what you're thinking, right? But here's the, here's the thing, man. She knows that she's a sinner. She knows that she's been forgiven a lot. And so she loves me a lot. You don't know. You don't know that you're a sinner. You don't know. You're so righteous. You are so religious. You are so good at following the rules that you don't even know how bad off you are. That's why you don't love me. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't offer me any water. You didn't, you weren't hospitable to me. And here's this broken woman. And and what Jesus is doing is he's just leveling the playing field. And he's like, look, if the, if the standard is perfection, then you guy across the table who's following every law that you can follow have absolutely no right to judge this woman who's on her knees, you know, crying and anointing my feet. It totally levels the playing field. And, and that is good news, right? That is good news for us because we're not, we're, we're, that takes us out of the position of judging other people or being judged by other people, right? And so that's what this standard of perfection uh, a perfection does. It just levels the playing field for repentance and for judgmentalism. And then here's the third thing that it does. It requires a loving God to intervene and to meet the standard on our behalf. Follow me here. If the standard is perfection and Jesus knows we cannot meet the standard of perfection, that means that Jesus is going to have to come in and meet the standard of perfection for us. That's, go ahead, Don, number three. The moral standard of Jesus can be met only by the total sacrifice of Jesus. When Jesus is preaching this, he's preaching this to his disciples. He's looking at Peter, who's right there, and he's going, that guy is going to uh, deny me. He's going to deny me. He's looking at Judas. And he's like, that guy's going to betray me. He looks at Thomas. That guy's going to doubt me. He looks at all of his other disciples. These guys are all going to, these guys are going to just lose it. They're going to all run. They're going to hide. Like none of these guys are going to live up to the standard. He's looking out at the crowd and he's giving this moral standard of perfection. And he's knowing that there's not a single person in that crowd that's going to follow it. He's looking into our hearts right here today. And he knows that there's not a single one of us that can follow his standard of perfection. And so he's saying, look, when he says, I'm going to fulfill the law, he's saying, I'm going to come in and I'm going to meet the standard for you. I'm going to meet the standard of perfection for you. There was a story that I was reminded of this week of a, a little 14-year-old boy that uh, lived with his father and his two younger sisters. Uh, his mother had died years earlier, and so the father and the boy and the two little sisters all lived in this little house. And the father was very proud of this house that he had bought, uh, that he had purchased for the family because he was a laborer. He didn't make a ton of money, but he had saved and scrimped and, 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 and pulled some money together. And he bought this house, you know, free and clear, cash, bought a house, moved the family in there, heart swelled with pride. Everything was great. They were happy living there in this home. Uh, and then suddenly the father died unexpectedly at work. Uh, brain aneurysm died. Uh, the, the, uh, the boy, after the grief and after the shock and everything, you know, the first wave of that, you know, wore off, uh, he started thinking about what's going to happen to my family. What's going to happen to my sisters and I? Their aunt came to live with them in the house, um, but he didn't understand the law of succession. So he thought that dad bought this house, 
this house is going to then have to be sold to somebody else, right? So he goes to his aunt and he says, aunt, how, how much does this house cost? His aunt said, this house costs about $150,000. And the boy says, okay. And he starts thinking about, you know, how much his sisters loved the little room that they decorated uh, up there with all their little posters and everything. He's thinking about the tire swing in the back and the creek running through the back of the yard. He's thinking about the fireplace where their family used to sit around and tell stories. So the little boy, 14 years old, says, I'm going out and I'm going to start working. And he starts mowing lawns and he starts raking leaves. He starts washing cars and he starts, you know, doing everything that he can to pull together a little bit of money, odd jobs here and there. And his aunt is starting to get concerned about him because he's like, before school he's working, after school he's working, late at night he's working. The kid is exhausted. And so one night he comes home, he's late working, and his aunt is there and sitting up for him, and she says, son, why, what are you doing? You know, why are you working like this, you know? And, and she's surprised when his, when his eyes swell up with tears. And he says, I, I don't think I can do it. She says, What? He reaches in his pocket. He pulls out like this crumpled wad of bills. And he goes, I've only made, you know, I've been working for three weeks. I've only made $300. There's no way I can come up with $150,000, you know, to buy this house. And the aunt rests her hands on the little boy's, you know, grubby little calloused hands. And she says, oh, baby, she says, this house is already yours. This house, when your dad died, this house became yours. That's how it works. You're an heir to your father. So everything that he owned when he was alive, that passed down to you. You don't have to buy this house. You can't buy this house. This house is a gift to you from your father. And I think Jesus is looking out at us, and he's saying, you can't do this. No matter how hard you work, you can't work your way into the good graces of God. Your little grubby hands are never going to be able to do what it takes to meet the standard of perfection that Jesus lays out. That's why God sent his son to die so that we would be heirs of God's righteousness. God's power then becomes our power, his righteousness, our righteousness, his perfection, our perfection, his love, our love, his hope, our hope. We can't, we can't do it on our own. We have a standard of perfection so that Jesus can meet that standard on our behalf. That's why he calls us to this standard. You say, how do I then, how do I then accomplish this standard? How do I reach this? How do I attain this? How do I even access this? I'm going to give you a couple access points uh, as we close here. One is just what he said, repent. Repent. That doesn't mean, you know, you got to go and be a crazy person. It just means you have to turn. You have to shift. Open your heart to God and say, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I cannot meet, I cannot meet your standard. Honestly, I can't even meet the standard that I have for myself. I have a lower standard for myself, and I don't even meet that. I can't. I need you. We open our heart, and we repent. The second thing that we do is we respond. That means we, tr- we start to follow him. We seek to follow him with everything we've got. We, we've, here at U City Family Church, we try to open up opportunities for you to respond. Co- you know, come to the growth track and start to learn more about who Jesus is and what his life is all about and how you can live it out. 
our life groups where you can get involved in community and start living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, serving on our dream team, finding ways to plug in and serve Jesus, getting into devotion time with yourself, reading the Bible, and just starting to develop and grow and learn and, and blossom in your faith, respond to his, 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 his commands, right? And so you say, okay, so what, what about when I mess up in those two, right? Which you will, which you will. You won't meet the standard. That's why I give you number three. Just repeat steps one and two. <laughs> it's just lead a life of repentance. Just lead a life of, of enjoying his mercy. Lead a life of accepting his grace. Lead a life of following him. Lead a life of relying upon him, trusting upon him for your righteousness. In other words, when it comes to our spiritual life, we should ignore Voltaire's advice. And we should never let our good get in the way of God making us perfect. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you today with open hearts. We ask, Lord, that those who are here today who are not followers of you uh, would open up their hearts today and become your followers, that they would seek after you, that they would open their hearts to you and, and really experience your love, your grace for the first time. We know that we cannot meet your standard. We accept that. And we also open our hearts and just accept your grace and your mercy in our hearts and accept your sacrifice for us. Father, give us the strength to move forward, to pursue you with everything we've got, to develop into the men and women that you would have us be, to become uh, disciples of yours, and then to make disciples, to reach out to others with your love and grace. Father, we pray that you would have us get our good out of the way so that we can be made perfect by your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to... We're going to close today by worshiping in a few different ways, and I would invite you to to join us in that. Um, One of the ways that we worship is through prayer. And so if you have a prayer request, you can fill out that connection card. uh, Drop that in one of these four baskets. There are four of them here in just a moment. Um, Our prayer team, as Claude said, will be praying throughout the week for your requests, uh, and we invite you to to pray um, with us. If you want to learn more about us or you want to get involved somewhere, you can write that on the connection card, drop that into one of the baskets. For those of you that call this your church home, if this is your church home, if you come here regularly and this is where your your spiritual home, uh, we we worship through giving, through generous giving to the work of the ministry. uh, And then uh, we also give out to a lot of other nonprofit agencies uh, here locally and abroad church planting, organizations, missions, work. And that's not for visitors, but if you're here and this is your home, we encourage you to give as an act of worship to God. And then finally, uh, we take the bread and the cup. And what we do with the bread and the cup is we celebrate and remember this very sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Because we know that we cannot meet his standard, because we know that we cannot be perfectly righteous, and because we have to rely upon his righteousness, we celebrate the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Because just before he died, the night that he was betrayed, he broke bread, he gave it to his disciples, he said, take and eat, this is my body that's broken for you. And he poured them wine, he said, drink, this is the blood of my covenant that's being poured out for you. And so we take the bread, and we take the cup, in remembrance of the sacrifice that he made. Now if you also just want to, uh, in, in a moment when I invite you to, uh, to, to worship with us, if you just want to stay in your seat and, and just think about and, and, and meditate on what we've talked about. 
please know that you, you know, feel absolutely comfortable to do that too. Wherever you, however you want to worship with us at this time, we invite you to do so. Let's all stand together. If our music team could come up now and lead us in music, we invite you to come and worship with us in any or all of these ways. Amen. Let's go. 
lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord. Everybody sing it. I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord. I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord. I lift my eyes up. I just pray that this week you leave here inspired and encouraged because you know that you cannot meet the standard that he laid out for you and yet you have a refuge in him. You have his strength. You have his hope. You have his peace. You have his love. You have his righteousness. You have his perfection. And I hope you walk in the joy and the confidence of that this week. Those of you guys, uh, as Justin mentioned earlier, those of you guys who want to participate in the setup team, Reach out to Justin. Justin will be hanging around here after service. Uh, Let him know. Those of you who want to come to our 201 session, invite you to come across the street. Uh, And everybody else, I hope you have an awesome week. Let me pray for you, and then we'll uh, take off. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this community of people, this uh, group of people, some of whom are here for the first time, many of whom have been here for a long time. Uh, We thank you, God, that we are all uh, your children. And, and, and that we are all equal in your sight and that you love us equally and that you've reached out to us and you've made the sacrifice for us that we might become your children. Father, we praise you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. We give you all the honor, all the